the Lord said, because these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their worship of me is a human commandment learned by rote. So I will again do sh amazing things with this people, shocking and amazing. The wisdom of their wise shall perish and the discernment of the discerning shall be hidden. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once again, let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you, Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is the third in a series this this uh, fall from the book of Isaiah, and we're working through this book. Um, before we get into this text, a couple of housekeeping items I think would be wise today. First of all, um, I would like just to make sure that we all know where we are in history. I mean, I mean not today, obviously, it's 2019, but um, this book of Isaiah is, a, is an interesting place in the history of Israel, um, this Old Testament history. Um, the way I understand Old Testament history, it kind of divides itself up into parts that are pretty easy to understand. There's kind of this prehistory. It starts with Adam and Eve, right? In the Bible, you open it to Genesis, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, several chapters, and then it goes into the kind of the story about Noah and the flood. We, sometimes we, we call this first part of the book of Genesis um, prehistory. It's, uh, it's very ancient, of course, thousands of years ago. And... Uh, but it, it kind of wraps up with uh, the, the flood and there is, uh, there's several, a, a number of generations that go by. And the, first, the next major character to come on the scene in, in Genesis in this, in this way long, long time ago history is the first of the patriarchs, Abraham. Abraham and then his son Isaac and his son Jacob are the, uh, we refer to, the, refer to them as the patriarchs. And that's a major kind of part of history as well. Again, thousands of years ago, until the time where uh, Israel, um, the, the Jacob and all of his sons end up getting carted off to a different country, which is the country of Egypt, right. So Israel um, is, you know, they go as a family, kind of a smaller, medium-sized family to, to Egypt, and they're there for like 400 odd years. And they're basically slaves in Egypt. They don't start out as slaves, but eventually a king, a pharaoh, comes along who doesn't really remember the, the favorite son of Jacob, whose name was Joseph, and they're, um, they become slaves. They're there for 400, over 400 years, and it's time for them to go to get out of Egypt. And who does God raise up to get them out of Egypt? Moses. So Moses um, and the story of the Exodus is what we, we read about as we get into the book of Exodus. And now we're moving forward in history. The man who follows Moses is Joshua. And so that whole, that whole part is very significant part of history um, of, of, of Israel. And then there's another shift when things kind of get, um, go into a, a cyclical 
period where they where the, where the people of Israel are obedient and then they're disobedient and they're obedient and disobedient and obedient and disobedient. And during that whole period of time, God raises up a whole series of what um, are judges. And we have the book of Judges in the, in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. So this whole period of judges, the most famous judges are Deborah, Gideon, Samson. We recognize these names. So that's the period of the judges. Then after the judges... The people want a king. And who is the first king? Saul is the first king. So there's three kings, Saul, and then the next one is uh, David. David is the favorite of all Old Testament people, the king that was a man after God's own heart. And then his son is Solomon. Those three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, they rule over what's called the United Monarchy. There's, a, there's 12 tribes in Israel, 10 in the north, 2 in the south, and that whole thing is called Israel. But after Solomon, it splits into two. There's two in the south and 10 in the north. They become two different small countries. The one in the north is called Israel, and the one in the south is called Judah. I know that's confusing because the whole thing is called Israel, but it's really the 10 tribes in the north are called Israel, and the two tribes in the south are called Judah. And there's a whole series of kings in this divided monarchy that happen. And this is a long period of time, starting at about, you know, the, right around the year 1000 and going on for hundreds of years. And that's where we are in Isaiah during the divided monarchy. Does that make sense? So we're right about the years, you know, we're, we're in the years like the 8th century BCE up to about the 6th century BCE. Of course, then after that, you know, there's the Babylonian exile when finally Israel is just disobedient for too long and they're carted off to the country of Babylon. And that goes on for, you know, 70 odd years. And then they're brought back, they're reinstated, but they're kind of a weak little country for a while. And then there's the 400 years of silence. We don't know a lot about the intertestamental period, that 400 years. So that's where we are in history, though. We're right about the 8th century BCE till about the 6th century BCE. Okay, you're following so far? Okay, Isaiah. Isaiah, let's talk for a minute about who this is. Isaiah, son of Amos. A-M-O-Z, not A-M-O-S. He's a different guy. Amos, the prophet, is the, is the first prophet, the oldest prophet that we have, not the biggest prophet in terms of how many chapters they have. That would be Jeremiah. The next would be Isaiah. Isaiah is the son of Amos, A-M-O-Z, um, and he lived in that southern kingdom. So those two, those two tribes that lived in the south, in Judah, he lived in the southern ki- kingdom, in and around the city of Jerusalem. According to Jewish tradition, he was of royal blood. And he prophesied during the reigns of Four kings, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. The years of those last two kings were especially a bad time in and around Jerusalem. The Syrian empire from the north, which was big, Assyria, um, was, was expanding and conquering smaller, uh, smaller countries like Israel and Judah, which, um, as I mentioned, had been divided into two since, since the years of David and his son Solomon, some 250 years earlier. So this is 250 years after King Solomon. And things are not going well in Jerusalem because the Assyrians are threatening. 
a big, big country. Judah is small and, and weak. And uh, to Isaiah, the reality of this threat was directly related to Israel's disobedience and their, their tendency to worship gods other than Yahweh, the God of Israel. So from the beginning of his prophetic ministry, Isaiah has been consistently calling his listeners to fidelity to God and what God wants from, from them and for them. He, he wants justice and heartfelt worship and, and being a light in their world, all three of which at which they failed miserably. So, okay, a last housekeeping item. We're moving forward this quickly, uh, th this Sunday, quickly uh, into chapter 29. I want you to know that our plan is to return to some of these earlier chapters, chapter 7, 9, and 11, um, those associated with the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, uh, when we come to the season of Advent. So we're kind of doing a hop, skip, and jump a little bit. We're going to jump forward a bit, and then we're going to go back. So, but for now, we're in chapter 29, and um, last week we were in chapter 6, which is right in the middle of that first section of the book, including prophecies about Judah and Jerusalem with reference to King Ahaz. 736 to 715 BCE. And then in chapter 29, where we are now, uh, this is a series of messages that Isaiah is preaching again to Judah and Jerusalem, but during the reign of King Hezekiah, different king who reigned in Judah from 1715 to 686 BC. And, and these prophecies are looking forward, and this is really interesting, they're looking forward to the fall of Jerusalem. So he's talking a lot about destruction that's coming and the exile of its leadership to Babylon, which, which happened a long time after in 587. Okay, thank you for letting me geek out about history for a minute. So this is, you know, this is, this is just something we, sometimes we just need to kind of know where we are and that, that helps me because I, one of my fears has been I'm gonna be talking about Isaiah and you're all gonna be thinking, yeah, yeah, who's Isaiah? We need to know kind of where this fits in history. So here's the deal. Those earlier prophecies in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 were concerned with worship and integrity and justice, which were spoken uh, at least 10 years or more earlier and had gone unheeded. They were not listened to. Perhaps you remember the words of Isaiah 6 when God told Isaiah that the people will not listen, they'll not understand, they're going to close their eyes and their ears, and, and this is what happened. This is really discouraging work, this Old Testament prophecy business. God says to Isaiah, yeah, go, go talk to the people, they're not going to listen, but do it anyway. And it's exactly what happened. So here in Isaiah 29, it's time when Judah and Jerusalem are reaping the results such as the punishment for their disregard of Isaiah's message. Assyria is coming from the north as a menacing presence. And there is this interesting metaphor earlier in the chapter where, where Jerusalem is called by the name Ariel, Ariel, Ariel. Isaiah, God is speaking through Isaiah and talking to Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and he's saying, Ariel, Ariel, what is going on with this? The word Ariel means altar. The altar where sacrifices are burned. And the meaning here is that the city, 
Jerusalem. The city will come under siege and will be burned and be burned the way altars around the temple burn. It's not a pretty picture. Verses five and six. I hope you have it open. Look at this. But the multitude of your foes shall be like small dust and the multitude of tyrants like flying chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise and with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. Yikes! This is terrifying. What is going to come upon this disobedient city? And when we come to verses 13 and 14, our text today, we see what the Lord has against Jerusalem and Judah. It's very clear. It's once again to do with the way they worship. But instead of the fact that they, they say and pray, what they say and pray is out of sync with, with their actions. Remember that from, from uh, chapter one? They were doing one thing, heartfelt worship, heartfelt, but then they would go out the rest of the week and do something else. They, they were out of sync. Their words were out of sync with their actions. Now, it's that their worship is out of sync with themselves. The connection is broken between what they say and what they have in their hearts. And in addition, they're just going through the motions. So um, one of our reformer uh, forefathers, John Calvin. I don't quote John Calvin very often, but you know, we're Presbyterians here. We should be quoting John Calvin a little more maybe. John Calvin actually comments on this passage saying that the two issues named here are common among religious people. And he had a certain group in mind when he was talking about that. But the, the first, drawing near with their mouths and lips, but their hearts are far from me, is simply hypocrisy. insincerity, saying one thing, but truly believing something else. Hypocrisy. And the second, Calvin said, is basically superstition. An irrational belief arising from, from ignorance or fear. Their worship of me is a human commandment learned by rote, can picture that, learning something by rote and thinking that if you say this, somehow you're going to appease God. Superstition. So when Calvin named these two tendencies of hypocrisy and superstition, he was thinking specifically about people who lived during his time, which was the 16th century, Roman Catholics. He's not talking about the Roman Catholics of today. I'm not talking about the Roman Catholics of today. But I think while it was likely necessary for Calvin and what God was calling him to do as a reformer, we need to pause here and say, these two issues, these two tendencies of superstition and hypocrisy are quite easy for any of us to fall into. And we do. We do it here in this room. 
as we come in and the songs are the same that we've sung and the words are the same that we've said and the prayers sound familiar and we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what we're saying with our mouths and our lips and what's in our hearts may be moving along that continuum of being two different things. Both hypocrisy and superstition can start small and grow within us. This morning, I want to encourage us to see that the point here is not to look at verses like Isaiah 29, 13, and 14 and say, aha, I recognize these things in other people. <laughs> no. These two tendencies are powerful temptations that today can pull us away from what is most important in worship. And what is that? God is looking for a kind of worship devoid of hypocrisy and superstition. And Jesus himself gave us a name for this. It's recorded in the fourth chapter of John, chapter 20, fourth chapter of John, verse 24. Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. To worship in spirit. Part of what this means is to allow yourself to be open to what the breath of God, the wind of the Holy Spirit, which is unpredictable, God's ruach, his breath, Open yourself to what God is doing in the here and now. Now, this is not learning prayers by rote. It's not, it's not enough to fall into a routine that will somehow appease God. This is a strong tendency among people like us who attend worship services like this one. That we, st we fall into a routine. And we start to kind of worship by rote. It's easy to do. And listen, your routine may be anything from a strict liturgical Worship, we, you know, we don't worship with strict liturgical worship here at Mountain View. We haven't for, oh, about 30 years, I think now. It's, you know, the, Mountain View is a Presbyterian church. It used to be more strict and liturgical. Am I right, um, Rick? Where's Rick? Yeah. Used to be different. Yeah, okay, a long time ago, but it's not now. But it, it could be that. Or it could be what we might call wildly Pentecostal, which can be full of God talk slogans that might make, make, might make us feel good but are a replacement for being open to what God's Spirit is doing here and now. It can happen in any situation, whether it's formal or informal, whether it's liturgical or free. We can get into a kind of routine. My, my mentor, John McCullough, used to say that the Holy Spirit, his, his favorite definition of who the Holy Spirit is, the Holy Spirit, he said, is the present tense of God. Amen. I love that. To worship in spirit is to simply be open to God's spirit and tr truly say, come Holy Spirit. Come now. Fill me, Holy Spirit. Show me Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to do, is to show us Jesus. Come now. And this, I believe, is the antidote to a tendency whose full expression is nothing other than superstition. You follow me on this? Does that make sense? And then worshiping in truth. Now, this is the antidote for hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. 
To put it plainly, being yourself, your authentic self in God's presence. Now, this is not all of what worshiping in truth uh, suggests, I think, what Jesus is saying, because there's a lot more here. But part of it is uh, not putting on airs, (laughs) not posturing yourself, but just to come as you would with your closest, truest friend. Come to God as you are, as Joey was saying this morning. Just be yourself. Wear pajamas to church. <laughs> I mean, if that's what, really. I have this, this wonderful memory of a man who was new to the church. This is a former church, a former life, long, long time ago. His name was Bill. And he was new to the church, and he was, um, he was in a small group. And the small group was praying. You know, they always close in prayer. And he, the small group was going to close in prayer, and they said, Bill, would you close in prayer? And Bill said, well, I'm, I've never done that. And they said, oh, go ahead. You can do it. Just go ahead. He goes, okay. God, Bill here. <laughs> I love that. I think that is so great. I mean, obviously, God knows who Bill is. But Bill wasn't concerned about those listening to him pray, even though he didn't really have the right things to say. Because you know what? It doesn't matter. Because when we pray, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit intercedes for us. None of us know how to pray as we ought, Paul says. None of us has the right words. If you're afraid to pray in public in front of people, do it anyway. It doesn't matter. Be yourself in God's presence. It's okay. Worshiping this way, uh, I believe, is the antidote to, to hypocrisy, to come into this worship service and just say, here I am, Lord. I bring myself just as I am. The antidote to hypocrisy when, when your true self is so hidden that you actually say and believe different things. Worshiping in spirit and truth is what Isaiah is calling his people to. And I believe God is still calling us to this today. But Isaiah goes on to say that there's something at stake here and God is going to do something. This is the last part. I'm going to close with this. Verse 14. So I will again do amazing things with this people, shocking and amazing. Notice that it's not dependent on whether or not they worship the right way. God's going to do the shocking and amazing things however they worship. But the question is, will they see it? The question is, will we see it? Not if we're coming to worship in the ways that have been described in verse 13, but if our hearts are near the Lord and if our worship is more than by rote, we will see we may see these shocking and amazing things. Shocking! You ever think about shocking things happening? God doing shocking things? I love the way Annie Dillard talks about this in her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. Highly recommended if you ever want to read someone talk about God in a really fresh and amazing way. Annie Dillard, write it down. Teaching a Stone to Talk, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. She's a Pulitzer Prize winner, Christian. She says this about this subject. Quote, On the whole, 
I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. <laughs> Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our, our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. She's talking about worship. <laughs> it can be risky if you're paying attention. You never know what might happen. Who might be rescued? Who might come back to life? What adventures awake those who come into God's presence with authentically open ears, eyes, and hearts? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray.